I'm just very concerned about reopening the borders too generally to international travelers because, you know, as we're seeing just in the last two to three weeks in Europe with rates going up significantly, you know, why is that happening? Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill, Fred, thanks again for joining us. Um, we're going to look at a 20-minute update in the landscape of uh, the data, vaccine rollout, etc. cetera. Uh, a lot of data coming from Israel. Dr. Fauci and others have focused on it in terms of the advisability of boosters for all Maybe we can just start there and um, would like to address the pediatric booster. And Fred, I know you're doing some incredible work and have some insights in terms of the long-term complications from, uh, for people who have had to be admitted to the ICUs. So why don't we start with uh, data from around the world, specifically Israel and this notion of eventually boosters for all. Well, well, certainly the biggest thing with the Israel experience is that, as everybody knows, Israel was the earliest and the biggest push for vaccination. And they got to the point of vaccinating about 75% of the nation fully vaccinated, another 5 to 10% um, that are partially vaccinated. And then there, there is a hardcore, um, primarily um, orthodox population that is not getting vaccinated, but they still have roughly 75% of the, pack, of the population fully vaccinated. Despite that, over the summer, they had a huge resurgence in disease. This was uh, part, this was Delta was responsible for it. But what they did was they moved rapidly on instituting a booster program. And they've boosted about 75% of those who were who were already vaccinated. And they've driven their their rate of infection back down to almost zero. I mean, it, it, it round it rounds to zero, essentially. So Boosters just in in real life, taking the 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 scientific process out of it, looking at it in real life, have worked. Yeah, I, I think the booster makes really good sense, particularly when individuals are not effectively using their masks and are tired of social distancing. Uh, the real solution is to achieve herd immunity with vaccine. And that's what Israel is doing. And the argument is, well, we shouldn't focus on the on the boosters because we have too many people in the U.S. and around the world that haven't gotten their first dose. So why are we focusing on those that have already had two doses? Well, the argument, I think, can be made that, uh, yes, we've given two doses, but now because of waning immunity, that's no longer effective. In order to continue to secure the advantages we got by, by vaccinating that population, they require a booster. So I, I'm in favor of a booster for most individuals. Um, there's some argument also that the younger people under age 30, uh, they will get very mild disease. The only problem is they could then spread it uh, to those that are more susceptible, older ages and immunocompromised. So I don't think, I think everybody should receive a booster as their immunity wanes. 
And along those lines, um, I think more and more authorities are saying that the CDC guidance that on boosters should be given to people who are at high risk should be read very expansively. And especially when you look at the occupational indication for a booster, which basically says anyone who has frequent contact with the public, that should be read very expansively. And the way I'm reading it is so that basically means all uh, people who have retail contact, uh, people who fly frequently, um, those are all people who have uh, frequent contact with large numbers of people who you cannot verify their vaccine stat- their vaccination status. So to me, that qualifies people for getting boosted. Great. Let me uh, switch because um, the rollout has begun for vaccine for children. Uh, any particular insights that you can share with the audience in terms of how that is going and just generally what the data is saying? Well, the the uptake is is quick. It's only been about a week, and we've there's uh, typically it's about running about five percent of kids that have been vaccinated, which is a pretty good uptake for just the first week. Um, most authorities believe that over fifty percent of children of the United States have already been infected with COVID. That's around fourteen million. Um, so we're really we need to get. It's, it's that other 50%, but oftentimes we don't know who that other 50% is. Um, we think that the, the, we, the adverse event rate for the vaccine is about 10%, but there were no, none, zero significant adverse events in the study population. But unfortunately, that was only just only right around 2,200 kids. Uh, so we you can't draw huge conclusions from it other than we know there's no high rate of severe adverse events. Yes. And one, one thing about that, the, the number of cases or a number of uh, children, 5 to 11, that have been studied is relatively low. But there's little reason to believe that there, the complication rates are going to be uh, anywhere uh, are higher than those from 12 to 18 where aside from myocarditis, there really have not been any significant uh, side effects. And the good news is the dose that's being used is one-third of that for those 12 to 18. And so far, there have been no cases of myocarditis using that dose. And and in fact, in the older kid population, the cases of myocarditis have been in the older of the older kids. So the 16 to 18 population has had significantly more myocarditis rate than in the younger, the 12 to 14-year-old population. So while you can't 100% draw a conclusion that it's going to be even lower in the younger kids' population, there's reason to think that that may be the case. The, the one thing we don't know is long-term effects. And that's what many people who are being resistant to vaccines keep saying is, we don't know what these long-term effects of the vaccines may be. But on the other hand, we do know the potential for long-term effects of getting COVID. I mean, even in children, there are long-haul adults and there are long-haul children. We know that that happens. We don't know that there are any long-term effects from the vaccine. And we know that the vaccine very, very effectively prevents disease. So we're preventing long-term effects with the vaccine, taking a what is believed to be a very, very small risk of long-term vaccine-related effects. The other thing to keep in mind, there have been over 8,000 admissions of pediatric cases to the hospital as a consequence of infections. And uh, the other big concern, which 
is rare but is quite devastating is MISC, that is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And that can cause very severe myocarditis to the point of some uh, children have required cardiac transplant. So um, there are some very serious potential uh, harm if you do get uh, infected. And the vaccine, we know of no serious side effects so far in the vaccine. So the benefit to risk ratio is tremendous. And just going back to um, just a few minutes ago, when we were talking about the need to get to herd immunity. Um, remember, there is good evidence that with Delta, because it is so infectious, and if you do the epidemiology on it, we probably need to get somewhere near 90-ish percent um, immune in some some manner, whether that's through vaccine or through disease, to reach a herd of effective herd immunity effects. We're not going to get there without kids. And so that's the other big piece of that is trying to get these kids vaccinated and then getting the boosters because not only do you have to have 90% that have had immunity at some point, you need to have 85 to 90% who are immune at the same time because that's the way you're going to get the herd immunity effects. Yeah, one other point that I've heard talked about is, uh, as Bill said, uh, probably somewhere 40 to 50% of children may already have been infected. But what you could do, and this has been recommended, is to do an ELISA assay to determine if the child has antibodies to uh, the virus. If they do, then they will only require a single dose uh, because you could assume the initial infection was your first uh, shot and then you would just receive the one shot. Um, That would save a lot of vaccine uh, the only issue is how easy it is to get the ELISA assay uh, and get that result back quickly. That also brings up the issue of the effectiveness of natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity. The official position of CDC is that vaccine-induced immunity is much better than natural immunity. But there are a number of studies out there, especially studies out of Israel, very large studies, tens tens of thousands of people out of Israel that are demonstrating that you have higher and more durable resistance if you got natural disease rather than getting the vaccine. The problem is that there's still a large number of people who get infected who don't develop uh, good good immunity, and you don't know what that you don't know who's in which group. It's not just simply a function a function of how sick were they, and even then, how do you grade how sick somebody was? So, um, it's I, I think the CDC is taking a little too strong a position that you of ig- totally ignoring whether or not someone's had infection before in determining what they need to have to be uh, to be immune. But I think it's, it's probably not quite as strong as the Israeli studies are showing. So I think we're somewhere in between. So underscoring the efficacy and safety of the vaccine, there was an announcement this week about opening up the U.S. borders to international visitors, uh, particularly important to cities such as New York that depend heavily on uh, the travel industry and visitors coming here. And uh, your thoughts uh, in terms of returning to a more normal environment and your thoughts not simply about people coming from around the world who have been vaccinated, but obviously uh, thoughts about Americans who may, for purposes of business or pleasure, want to travel abroad. I'm just very concerned about reopening the borders to generally um, uh, 
for to international travelers because you know as we're seeing just in the last two to three weeks in Europe with rates going up significantly you know wh- why is that happening you know part of it is the 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 end of summer travel that was happening and bringing people you know traveling throughout Europe do we want we're going to now bring that to the United States I think we should and it's important to reopen the business travel um, my this is more opinion than anything I think that opening it to travel in general right you know one just one big jump i think is a little bit too much fortunately it is with vaccination requirements but we'll see what happens yeah bill i agree the big mistake that has been made in the us and many countries over and over again is to assume that the uh, epidemic is over and that's simply not the case there's still as one pediatrician stated there's still plenty of wood to burn and so we really have to be cautious and, and do things in a graded way rather than all or none. And I think that's very, very important. Somehow, uh, it's not politically correct to gradually open stuff, anything up. You have to do it completely open everything up. And then guess what? You get a rebound of infections. And we've, I don't know how many times we have to do this before we uh, learn, but it seems to be we have to do it over and over. And it's, it's from a, someone who works in the hospital and sees the admissions. Uh, this is exceedingly frustrating to see the same mistake being made over and over again. So relevant to your point about it, uh, admissions, I know uh, both of you are thinking uh, about a number of levels of the pandemic, the lessons learned. Uh, new data is coming out, and um, with it, some media coverage for the people who had to be admitted to the ICUs. And as you've pointed out, a vast majority of these individuals are people who have not been uh, vaccinated. But the long-term consequences. And, um, Bill, I know, I think you stated that fortunately none of the patients you cover uh, have had to be admitted to the ICU, but Fred, you're in a different vantage point by virtue of your position at a leading hospital. Uh, What can you share uh, with the audience about uh, some of these long-term consequences? Well, when someone is intubated uh, and has a ventilatory support, in order to efficiently ventilate them, you usually have to use uh, low volume, high respiratory rate. This is a natural respiratory uh, approach. And so uh, patients would fight that if they're awake. Therefore, they have to be heavily sedated and often paralyzed. The problem with this sedation and paralysis is that all their muscles uh, become weak and they get severely, I mean, severely deconditioned to the point that many of them can barely move at all once they get off the respirator. And it requires months to actually recover physically, to actually move in the house normally. So what this means is they need a prolonged physical therapy. They may require a inpatient physical therapy unit uh, to build up their strength. Unfortunately, a fair number of them never fully recover. And the other thing that we're hearing about, and this has been true of all intensive care unit admissions, that require intubation and sedation, is many of them experience a a cognitive impairment. They just feel in a fog 
and they never get back to normal. The other big problem sometimes that can happen, we are very cautious about this and our nurses are very good about it, but sometimes a patient can get a pressure ulcer from lying in one position too long and these pressure ulcers can become very heavily infected and actually lead to sepsis uh, subsequently. And there was a report actually in the New York Times today about a patient who actually suffered sepsis as a consequence of a large decubitus ulcer. So being uh, hospitalized in the medical intensive care unit is extremely stressful and is uh, too often leads to permanent disability. Generally, Fred, the takeaway message is survive, you're discharged, but there are long-term consequences to COVID-19, which are just beginning to be understood. Yes, that's exactly right. The other thing that we've noticed about patients who are in the intensive care unit for a prolonged period is their immune system becomes weakened. And so they're more susceptible to other infections in the future. So um, it's if you possibly can avoid being admitted to the medical intensive care unit, you should do it. And one of the best ways to prevent that is to get vaccinated. Great. A couple minutes uh, left. I'm going to turn back to you, Bill, uh, just in terms, uh, because we have questions from a number of our clients about, uh, and we've addressed this before, but I think it's important. But uh, from both you and Fred, whose da- data should we trust when we're trying to understand what's happening, you know, where uh, in a, on a local level, where we have people, where we have property, where we have critical supply chains, et cetera? What's the best way to guide these, you know, guide decisions? Well, I, I think that the what has become the guiding statistic in government and media has been the number of cases. Um, I think we've talked over these sessions at at length about how that's not a good statistic. You're better looking at hospitalizations or unfortunately even deaths, but that is the number that is being used and cited more often. But remember, as we get to the point where between the hospital management capabilities, the anti um, the the monoclonal antibody treatments, and now very soon to be the antiviral treatments of uh, of uh, Merck and Pfizer oral antivirals. This is going to move more and more to a disease that has does not lead with it high rates of hospitalizations or deaths. And if we st- we still may have high numbers of cases, but if you're man- trying to manage and make decisions based on just on cases, when a case doesn't really have significant long-term implications, then that's going to be you're going to be overmanaging. Um, so you've got to really be watching hospitalizations and deaths. That will decrease with all of the treatments that we are bringing to bear, especially the new treatments that are coming online over the next probably 30 to 45 days. The, the one other issue that I think we just need to touch on very briefly is, is the emergency temporary standard and what its current status is. Um, as we know, the emergency temporary standard was issued by OSHA, which essentially requires that by December 5th, anyone who is in a workplace of more than 100 people who is not vaccinated must wear a mask. And by, num- by November 4th, all companies must have in place a policy that requires either vaccination 
or vaccinate or testing for anyone who is not vaccinated. Um, that was issued last week. And then um, on the end of last week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals put a temporary stay of the emergency temporary standard into place. Now, that has really confused a lot of people because while there is a temporary stay in place nationwide, what happens if that stay is lifted? Does that mean you immediately go back to the pre-existing deadlines? The Most authorities believe that if the stay is lifted, they will extend the deadlines by the number of days that the stay was in place. There's nothing hard and fast about that. It depends on whatever the order the court gives, but that is what is anticipated. So the, the, the take home message on that for most organizations is keep getting things in place because you don't wanna be caught flat footed if the emergency temporary standard is reinstated but you're also not going to, you're probably not, probably not going to be required to comply instantaneously. You'll still have the 30 to 60 days as anticipated by the, in the initial issuance of the temporary standard. Bill, don't you anticipate that the uh, mandate will uh, eventually be supported and that uh, OSHA's role is to make the workplace safe? And having everyone vaccinated or being tested and if test positive not being able allowed to go in the workplace is the best way to keep workers safe. Oh, it, 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 without question. The, the, the issue is whether is, is on two grounds. Um, one is, is it an emergency? And the fact that our rates have been coming down and, and stabilizing and the fact that it took four months from the initial um, statement that there would be an emergency temporary standard until taking effect, does that demonstrate that it is truly an emergency? So that's one of the issues. And then the other issue is the constitutional issue of of control of disease has traditionally been a state-level function. This is the reason why, including throughout the management of this, it hasn't been, CDC has given guidelines, but any enforceable orders have come from the states. So it's the police powers to include police powers related to disease are traditionally and many say constitutionally a state level function. So if a state wants to issue a mandate, there is there is no constitutional uh, issue to with that. The federal government issuing a mandate is a different story. But I'm not a lawyer. We'll we'll leave that to David. No, no. And and you guys are not politicians and of course you know, campaigns are being run on on this point. So, listen, Bill, Fred, once again, thank you for the insights. I know you guys are very, very busy. So really appreciate you making time for the audience and for sharing very, very valuable perspectives. I look forward to catching up with you guys uh, next week. Just stay safe. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. 
Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.